Amen. Thank you, Megan. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing today? Doing good? Good. Glad you're with us today. I would encourage you to take some, uh, find some dates that work for our Summer Palooza events. It's just, we recognize Minnesota summers are short enough and people are traveling on the weekends a lot. And so we, what we wanted to do over the summer is just a lot of different events, fun things for all ages for you just to get to know some people. Because church, uh, church is fine and good on Sunday mornings, and maybe some of you are like, I'm just I'm dipping my toes in the church water, just checking this out, and that's all you want to do. That's fine. But we always encourage you to get involved, meet some people. That's really when church comes alive. So we encourage you to do that. Um, we are continuing our series today called Cultivate. And really what we're talking about is relationships. So over the past few weeks, we've talked about our relationships, and really the, the theme of this is cultivate like the soil of a garden. We work the soil, we fertilize it, we tend to it, because that's what results in the fruit that we, and the, and the growth that we want. So in our relationships, we do the same thing. How can we work on the relationships in our life? We've talked about different relationships. Um, today, we're going to talk specifically, well, a lot to do with marriage, but if you're not married here today, I don't want you to check out or think, oh, I came to church on a terrible day. This principle that we're going to talk about is uh, for all our relationships, whether single or married or used to be married or hope to be married someday. Um, but um, before we do, I wanted to re- I just wanted to highlight last week, Brooke and Stephen Maxwell did such a good job talking about family discipleship, leading the way as parents in having our kids grow up in the faith. One of the things that we want to make sure is a priority here as the church, both collectively and individually, is that we are handing down our faith to the next generation. We see that throughout scripture is do your job to make sure the next generation coming behind you also carries this faith in Jesus Christ. I wanted to just reiterate a couple of things. Um, One was they had said this, that uh, in discipling your kids, um, church is a supplement to what you're doing at home, meaning don't just say, well, I'm going to take my teenager to church an hour a week, and that should take care of all the Jesus stuff. Um, we need you to be leading the way at home in this. However, the church is such a great resource. The, the youth that meet here on Wednesday nights, kids' church going on downstairs, um, that is a great resource. So I encourage you, if you want to raise your kids up in the faith, get them to church and make it a consistent part of their life. Our our kids, we have four kids, um, and, you know, they turned out decently well, I think. And so, but if, if we're talking about how we raised them in the church, I think the biggest thing or one of the biggest factors was that church was a consistent part of their life. It was just something they did. There was friends in the church. They were a part of the church um, community, and so that is a huge thing. Get your kids to church. Make it something that's a priority for your family. And the other thing that they talked about was how kids will – Learn more by watching their parents rather than by listening to their parents. More is caught than taught. And they mentioned this in regards to um, prayer and worship. And they said, so, so model prayer to your kids. Model worship to your kids. And I wrote that down in my notes, and I was thinking about that. And I thought, well, we need to do a better job as worship models, um, as parents. Because what happens is, and you can probably hear it going on downstairs, I mean, we heard it a minute ago, right? The thumping music going on downstairs. They're worshiping and they're jumping and they're shouting and they're lifting their hands and they're giving it all they got in worship. And then Wednesday nights, they'll come here and all the teenagers will be right up here up front and they'll be jumping around and screaming and worshiping. And then I think, what happens if a kid comes to church on Sunday morning and says, now we get to see how the grown-ups worship and there's a lot of just standing around, staring at the screen. And so I want to encourage us to continue to grow. I do not want the young generation to learn, oh, parents, 
stop worshiping once they get out of high school or parents get bored in church or parents, you know, they don't, I want us to always be mindful of we're growing in our faith. We don't lose that childlike faith that we used to have. So model and lead the way in that. All right, today we are going to talk a lot about marriage, but really a principle that is not only in marriage, but in all our relationships. But the title of the message today is Men, Women, Marriage, and the Church. And we're going to open a can of worms here in a little bit, just preparing you for that. Um, if there's going to be some verses we read that maybe you've heard taught over the years, or maybe you're like, I don't agree with that, or I don't like that. And I'm always open to emails and suggestions and complaints. And you can email Pastor Jeff Merricks at <laughs> homestead.biz. Um, no, there, there is a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about marriage. We're going to open a can of worms a little later on, so just be prepared for that. So hang with me through the whole thing. It's going to be just fine. All right, but I wanted to start with this in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. I wanted to start by reading a couple of passages of Scripture that are commonly read in regards to marriage. And then also, if you've been a, at a wedding ceremony, chances are one of these Scriptures is probably read. Um, but Mark chapter 10, verse 6 through 9 is the first one. And really what I want to do here is just kind of set up where marriage came from and God's uh, original plan for, for husbands and wives. And so this is Mark chapter 10, verse 6 through 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we see that, first of all, marriage is something that God set up. God designed marriage. God created men and women. In the beginning, God created them male and female. God uniquely designed men and women with different strengths, different gifts. But if you read in Genesis, the original design with men and women was that they were equal in responsibility equal in leadership and partnership. This was God's design, and marriage was to be the ultimate union between two people, husband and wife. This was God's idea, this idea that two become one flesh. It's not like marriage is, well, let's get together and see if we can make this work. It's two people becoming one flesh. So a lot of marriage conflict could be solved in recognizing we are joined together we are on the same team. We are supporting one another in this union of marriage. Um, and so a lot of times, we just need to be reminded, this is what we are as husband and wife, is united in this way. Now, um, it's also, in, later on it says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. We used to do this more in marriage ceremonies. I haven't heard it recently, and I think that's a good idea um, to not do it anymore. It, was, it used to be... If anyone sees any reason why these two should not be joined in marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace, right? And then they'll usually say that verse, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. As a way of saying, okay, y'all had your chance to break them up, but you didn't, so now you got to zip it, okay? Now, I don't really like that in a marriage ceremony. I just, I, I'm not a big, I don't think that's the best time for like open mic moment. Like who's got a story they want to share right now before we say I do, Let's air all the dirty laundry here. Um, but really that verse, what it is taken to mean sometimes is, okay, what God has joined together, nobody come along and mess it up because God's, God's joined it together, so don't you go messing it up. I don't really know that that's what it, the meaning is. I think what the verse is saying is what God has joined together, the two becoming one, 
really can't be separated. Now, I know marriages have en- some marriages have ended, and I understand that. But the idea is marriage is a union. The two have become one. Christy and I talk about this with conflict. Is we, anytime we're in conflict together, and um, and we just are, you know, seem to be fighting with each other. It's always important for us to recognize. Okay, this is not me against you, in this conflict. This is us against the conflict. We are united. We got to figure this out. We got to communicate through this. So, that I think is just one of the big things that we can apply to our marriages. Is we're united. The two have become one. Well, we see that God's design was that men and women would be equal. Men and women would have different strengths and gifts uniquely created, but equal in responsibility and leadership and partnership. This was God's design. If you read then on in Genesis, it didn't take long for humans to mess it up. Adam and Eve fell. They sinned. Sin entered the world and messed everything up. And one of the things that happened as a result of sin was that women became subject to men. This was what happened as a result of the fall. It was the first time that there was a hierarchy of this person is under this person. This person is under this person's authority or subject to this person. This was a result of sin and the fall. It was not God's original design. And we can see the ramifications of that throughout history, right? That idea of one person is subject to another. Not even just in the mistreatment of women over the history of time. But also every conflict, every conflict comes from somebody thinking, I'm more important than this group of people. I'm more important than this individual. You need to come under my authority. And this is the root of all conflict. But this was not God's original design. It's a result of the fall. So I wanted to start with that to kind of give you an idea of this is how God created men and women. This is why God created marriage, the two becoming one. And as a result of the fall, all these different things and divisions happened. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 is another passage of scripture that is often read or quoted in marriage ceremonies, in wedding ceremonies. Now, parts of it are difficult to understand. There's been a lot of conflict or division in churches over these verses, a lot of disagreement to the application of these verses. So I'm going to start by reading just a couple of them and kind of show you, yeah, if you just take those verses in and of themselves, it sounds a little weird and it might feel awkward in here for a moment. And husbands, I'm just going to tell you, don't say amen for one minute, okay? Here we go. I'm going to read Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We're going to stop there for a minute. And everyone's going like, oh, man, this is getting awkward here. This is feeling tense. Now, this is difficult to understand. A verse like that has been used throughout history as a a way to, to perpetuate the idea that women are secondary in importance in our culture, and in a marriage relationship. And this is why it's so important for you to read your Bible, the whole, like, all of it. Because if you just pick and choose verses, you can see things and you can say, oh, well, this, this is clear, this is what this means. And you've missed the whole point, the broader picture of what Paul is writing about. There's verses leading up to that. There is a theme that applies to all people, all relationships, that these verses are a part of. And so that's why it's important for you to read the whole thing so you can understand the context. You can understand what the author is saying. 
It's not just enough to pick out a verse and say, that's my life verse. And there it is. You know, husbands, we can't say Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands. That's my life verse. I want to stencil that on a board and put it on the wall above the fireplace, right? Right next to the live, laugh, love sign that my wife got at Hobby Lobby. It's not enough to do that. We have to understand what the author is saying. And so just so you know, we're going to read a passage of scripture from this chapter in Ephesians. Now, just for those who are like brand new to the Bible, and I recognize there's some people here that are just brand new. There's, in my Bible, there are different headings or subtitles over certain sections. And maybe if you have your Bible, it'll say that like this. This section is about this, and it gives a theme for what's about to be read. And then there's chapters and verses. And so in Ephesians 5 dot dot 22, the 5 is the chapter and then the dot, dot, 22 is the verse. So the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. And so that is designed, plus the chapter headings and different subtitles, that's designed for us to be able to kind of find our way around. Those were all added by the publisher of this particular version of the Bible. Those were not there. None of these chapter headings and different, like, breakups in theme and all these things were there in the original. Originally, this was a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Ephesus. So it was all one theme throughout. It was all one literary work throughout. So, and so sometimes these subtitles and chapter breaks are put in bad places because it gives you the idea that, oh, that last section is over and now we're on to this thing. And this is one of these times where there, in my Bible there's a, like a chapter or a heading break that kind of interrupts the whole theme, and it's in a bad spot, in my opinion, but nobody asked me before they published it. So uh, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 25, and we're going to get a whole kind of glimpse of what Paul is talking about here. Verse 15, he's talking to all the people. He says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So he is going on to say, here's how you live as wise believers. Here's how you live in a way that honors Jesus. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't waste your days. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Seek after the Lord. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. This is why, you know, this is what Paul is saying is don't waste your days being uh, overcome by any sort of addiction. Don't waste your days getting drunk on wine because then you have given over the authority of Christ in your life to a substance. Um, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music with all your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where I have a big subtitle change. And it's in a terrible spot because it continues on. The message of Paul continues on. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I have highlighted that. So all that Paul is saying here is be careful how you live. Don't give your life over to the influence of a substance. Make sure you're living, seeking after God's will. Make the most of your days. Sing songs of rejoicing and celebrate with one another what God has done. And in addition to that, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In all your relationships, submit to one another. And then Paul goes on to apply that to all our relationships. So Paul is going to go on to talk about parents and kids. If you are in authority or under authority, workers or masters, um, owners or whatever it was, like landowners and workers, bosses, employees, and also husbands and wives. And so this is how he applies the main context of that highlighted word, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is what we need to get as our takeaway today. And he applies it to men and women, wives, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're going to pause there for a minute. This is how we live out our faith. And in the context of relationships, be subject to one another. Submit yourself to one another. Submit yourself. Be subject to one another. This is the main point that I want you to get today. And Paul applies this to all people in all relationships. It doesn't matter who you are, what position you find yourself in. uh, Put yourself as subject to other people. Lay down your life for the benefit of other people. And in marriage, certainly this is the key, right? Certainly this is key in marriage. If you go into a marriage saying, I'm going to give of myself for the benefit of my spouse. I'm going to make myself subject to my spouse. I'm going to lay my life down for my spouse. This is how marriage thrives. This is something that we refer to as mutual submission, Mutual submission, both husband and wife laying down their lives for the other person. This is key. This is everything. So wives, submit yourselves to your husband as a way to honor God. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if you're looking at that thinking, well, what does that mean as Christ loved the church? How did Jesus love the church as husbands are supposed to love their wives? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, We hear all about how Jesus came, and even though he was God, and even though he had reason to be in authority, he laid down his life. He made himself a servant. He made himself the lowest for the benefit of other people. This is how Paul is saying, husbands, we are to love our wives, to lay down our lives for them. So this mutual submission idea is how marriage is going to work. So for Christy and I, If we are in a tug of war sometime because there's conflict and we're like, well, I want this and I want this, you might think that because Christy and I are pastors that we never fight. Not the case, okay? We've been married 24 years, and I would say over the last few years that it has been the season where we have needed the most work, like the most difficult conversations. It seems like, wow, we thought we had this figured out when we were five years into marriage. I remember being a year or two into marriage thinking, wow, those people who are married 24 years, they must have it all figured out, right? Just smooth sailing. And, and then I'd hear stories about people who had been married like 25 years getting a divorce, and you're like, how does that happen? I remember thinking this as a young person, like, haven't you got each other kind of figured out then? How is it possible for people to get a divorce after 25 years? Now I've been married for 24 years, and I think to myself, eh, you know, maybe. <laughs> Maybe I can see how that would happen. All that to say, no, all that to say, it's required the last few years. We've been, we've been gone to see counselors. We've had a lot of, we've done a lot of work at learning how to communicate, learning how to get out of some of these bad habits. I've had some bad habits of communication that I have had ingrained in me over the years, and it just takes work. And so I'm just saying that, like, when Christy and I are talking about marriage, we are working through it. We have worked through it, and we are working through it. Um, but if we're going into this idea, Christy and I, a marriage of, well, I need this. And so it's like a tug of war where I'm like, well, I need this and I need this. And Christy's like, well, I need this and I need this. And we're like jockeying for position. And well, I need this. And, and at best, it's going to be kind of a negotiation. Well, you can have that if I get this. And I'll do this if you do this. And it's like this negotiation. That does not last. The conflict is always there. If 
our approach is my job is to prefer her and to make sure her needs are met and to make sure I'm doing everything I can to cause her to flourish in every area of life. And her job is to prefer me and to do everything she can to cause me to flourish. What happens then? Both of us have our needs met. It's just not us that's providing for our own needs, right? We are allowing the other person to do it. We're trusting the other person is doing it. We're trusting that it's going to be reciprocated. It's part of the union of marriage. This is how it's designed. Mutual submission. Now, if both people do it, marriage is going to work great. If both people don't do it, it's going to be tough. It's just going to be a constant tug-of-war negotiation. Now, what happens sometimes is one person does it. One person is giving of themselves for the other person, and the other person is just taking advantage of that. Well, then you get somebody getting walked all over, right? Then you get somebody being neglected, and that's a whole other world of hurt and trauma and perhaps even abuse, right? So the goal is in marriage, mutually be like Jesus and lay down your life for the other person. So Christy and I will um, say this phrase to each other um, quite often, and we just do it because we kind of know what we're saying, but we'll say, how can I be subject to you today? Now, it might sound a little weird if other people were listening, but what we're saying is, what can I do to help you today? And it might be something practical. It might be something like, hey, you said this, and we need to talk about that, or hey, I really need this, or, and we will both do that to each other, and that's when our marriage is working great. And then when there's conflict, we'll both eventually, maybe after a while of conflict, realize, oh, I got my eyes off of what I'm supposed to be doing, and I got selfish again, and I need to remember. I need to apologize and prefer her. This is the way that we have worked through it. This is the way I believe that Christ modeled it for us and that the writers of Scripture are instructing us to do. Now, this applies to every area of your marriage. This applies to every area of your marriage. If it's helping to raise the kids, if it's decisions for school and kids and all the chaos of that, if it's helping around the house, if it's expectations in marriage, if it's, you know, we're going to talk about every area of our marriage. So, you know, kids, if you're in here, put on your earmuffs for a second. As long as you see that, keep your hands covered if you don't want me to hear about mom and dad right now, or you don't want to hear about mom and dad right now. This, of course, applies to your sex life. If there's something not working right in your sex life, if there's someone who is uh, expectations are not being met or someone who's feeling neglected, you have to talk about it and say, here's, you know, how can I be subject to you? How can I prefer you? And so husbands, maybe if your wife is disinterested in sex, maybe it's because you have been disinterested in every area of life until that moment or you have not contributed in the, in the family at all until that moment. And then all of a sudden you're expecting the magic to happen like a light switch, right? Or, or wives, maybe you have, it's been a while since you have factored in maybe what your husband uh, is preferring or would like the wishes of each other if you this is obviously an area like everything else if you will focus on the other person if you will give of yourself for the other person both people will feel heard and have their needs met so all areas of life including your sex life will be factored into this principle of mutual submission okay we can take that off okay kids we're back all right when both people are giving of themselves for the benefit of the other, marriage works great. Okay, so I want to go, this is the first of the maybe, this, is the, this isn't the big can of worms, this is just the opening act can of worms coming up right there. Some of you are like, we haven't even gotten there yet? No, here's what it is. What about the idea that you read in Ephesians, for the husband is the head of the wife? What in the world does that mean? The husband is the head of the wife. I don't know exactly how this works. Some people have approached these verses 
as um, a very kind of male-dominated uh, either culture or relationship where the men are in charge, the men make the decisions, the men's like, I'm in charge, I'm the head of this house, I'm going to decide what's going on, and I'm going to disciple my wife, and I'm going to, you know, all these things. And the wife's just supposed to sit there and say, yes, dear. Um, when I have approached the subject of discipling my wife at home, it's been met with the gnashing of teeth um, at times. I mean, here's the deal with Christy and I. I recognize Christy is a woman of faith, a woman of God. She is wise. She hears from the Lord. She studies the word. We, in our faith, we spur each other on. We encourage each other. That, that is how it has worked. But some people view that principle of the husband as the head of the wife as a very much like the men make all the decisions and the wife just has to nod and say, okay. Now, it's important, again, in talking about any of these topics. What is the whole of Scripture? What does Scripture teach us? Who was Jesus? Who, what did Jesus teach us about being uh, a leader or being in charge? Did Jesus say, if you want to be first, what did he say? You have to be last. If you want to be in charge, you have to be the servant. If you want to be great, you have to be the servant. If you're the head, you give yourself in a way like Jesus did to promote other people. You serve other people. So this is what we see Jesus teach. So anything along the lines of the husband is the head of the wife. Again, I don't exactly know what that looks like. But anything along that line is if you're going to say, well, I'm the husband and I'm the head of my wife. All that means in light of what Jesus is teaching is I, as the husband, am going to lead the way in serving, in giving of myself, in preferring my wife, in causing anything that I can give to cause her to flourish. So if there's anything in regards to you being the head of your home, it is leading the way in serving and dying to yourself and giving of yourself. Now, husbands, if we would do that, I don't think there's too many wives that would have a problem coming under that, right? Uh, respecting that and honoring that. Again, it goes to the mutual preference of the other person, mutual submission, giving of yourself for the other person. Now, this, practically speaking, can look different in any marriage. There are some marriages where the personalities of husband and wife are naturally bent towards more of what we would say is a traditional, you know, marriage where the husband is totally fine making all the decisions and the wife is totally fine and feels loved and supported with the husband making all the decisions. And that's the way it's worked for their personalities. This can also work in the inverse of that, where maybe the personality is such where the husband is very quiet and timid and reserved and forcing him to step into that role of now you're in charge, you got to make all the decisions. His personality is going to be like, ah, I don't never asked for that. Where the wife's gifted is more, gifting is more in decision and leadership. And they both feel preferred and loved and supported, but it looks completely different as far as the roles and the decision making. So I'm saying it can be any combination as long as husband and wife both feel like they're being heard and preferred by the other. Both are laying down their lives for the flourishing of their spouse. Does that make sense? Christy and I, we are both opinionated. We both love to make decisions. And so we've learned to navigate through that. We have the additional um, blessing of planting a church and pastoring a church together as co-pastors. So it's not just us working together as equals in our family, but also in the church. And so there are times where we disagree. 
at home with our kids at church. And so there I've learned that she is gifted in ways that I am not. And I've learned to defer to her if she's feeling something or thinking something. I'm like, you are always smarter at that than me. Let's go with you. And there's times where maybe once or twice where the reciprocal has been the case where she'll say, you have a better key in this and we're going to go with you. And what about the times where it's like a, a deadlock? Like, Who's got the who's got the tie-breaking vote? Who's got 51% versus 49%? We've never had that happen. If there's times where we disagree, either we'll go and we'll say, we gotta just think about this more, process it more, or we'll just navigate through and come up with a decision together. This can look different in any marriage. However, it has to be that we support one another. There has to be room for communication in regards to any area of your marriage. Uh, husbands and wives, I just want to encourage you in this, and we're going to talk about this more next week. Provide a safe place for you to communicate honestly and openly. You have to have an environment where husband and wife, you can talk about, here's what you said, and this is how it made me feel. Here's my thought about this. Here's some things that I wish were happening. I would love this or I would love this. Again, try to avoid the you always and you never and you're the worst because then that's going to bring up defenses, right? However, if we can provide an opportunity for communication and adding things to the conversation where it's just learning and understanding from your spouse, that is going to lead to a whole lot of good in your marriage, a whole lot of ways that I will learn how I can prefer my spouse and help her. We have to be able to have that moment of communication without the defenses, without the accusations, but just to uh, help understand one another, to be able to be heard and communicate. There, you don't even need to come to church next week. You've got the whole sermon right there. Okay, where am I here? So this is, this is how it looks in us. Any marriage can look differently, but you have to look at all of these things through the lens of what was Scripture Jesus taught us to lay down our lives for the other. All right, which brings us to the big can of worms for today. We still haven't gotten to the big can of worms. Um, so I got a few minutes left. Here's what I want to talk about. There are other verses in the New Testament written by Paul that have caused thousands of years of disagreement and conflict in the church in regards to women in the church as leaders and pastors and teachers. Now, you might be new to church, and this idea is like, I've never heard of that. So forgive me if this is something that you've never heard of, you never knew it was an issue. I just know for some people, this is a, a tradition that they maybe were raised in where they thought, they were taught women are not allowed to be teachers or pastors. Women are not allowed to be in authority because of some of these verses we're reading today. So we're just going to dive right into it because why not? Um, so uh, I get asked this often. Christy will get asked this, but more me because I think they want to ask me this question as the husband. But if people are, are inquiring about our church, I can usually bank on they're going to ask a couple questions. And right near the top of the list of how often I'm asked this question is, do you have women who are pastors and teachers and leaders in your church? And I'll say, well, my wife Christy is the co-lead pastor, so yes. Um, and you can usually tell, if they ask that question, I always know it's going to be like, oh, because they've been raised in a tradition where that goes against, they think that goes against scripture. And so they are, they're like, oh, okay, well, I kind of believe differently. And that gives me the opportunity to use my favorite phrase. I think a different church might be a better fit for you. <laughs> and I think it's worked. Um, 
But here, where does this come from? This idea, maybe you grew up in a, in a tradition, a church tradition that taught this, that women cannot be leaders and pastors and teachers. So where does this come from? There are a few verses in the New Testament that kind of is the basis for that line of thinking. If you think that way today, I'm going to, here's, here's my thoughts on this. I don't believe that it is just an anti-woman sentiment that people are like, oh, women aren't capable of that. I think for the most part, again, giving the benefit of the doubt, people would say, well, this is what scripture says and we should adhere to scripture. Unfortunately, it goes from there to a very harsh environment for women to be raised in a church like that where they feel, I had a conversation with someone in this church after the first service today where she said, I felt God calling me into leadership, into teaching, and I've always been told it was not scriptural. And so you end up with, with a lot of women in a lot of churches just feeling like, oh, God doesn't use me in that way. God can't use me in that way. God's not designed me for that. So I want to just kind of read these scriptures as the basis for that thinking, and then we're just going to talk about it. we got about 10 minutes left. And then we go have tacos for lunch. Um, here's the, here's uh, one of the verses is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 14. It says this, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold and pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That's what every woman wants to hear, right? Don't worry about all that fancy stuff. Just be good deeds. Um, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. There's a lot in those verses, right? Um, so what I want to highlight, for, we'll come back to that in a minute, but what I want to highlight first is that he, again, Paul is referring to because of the fall, this was happening. Because Adam and Eve sinned, because that hierarchy was put in place, and again, that was not God's original design. The second verse is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 35. It says this, women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says, referring to the Old Testament law. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So what does this mean? What do these verses mean? If you take these verses literally, it's pretty clear. We should not have any women speaking in this church, right? If you take it literally. But if you take it literally... Um, yeah, a lot of people would take that literally to say this is why we believe that God has designed it that women would not have the role of teaching or leading. Now, first thing I want to point out is a literal application is tricky because then you've got to take the whole thing, like word for word literal, which means that we also got to be against, you know, any fancy hair, no, no hairstyles, no jewelry. Men, it said, I, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. We better have our hands up all the time and be praying all the time if we're taking this literally, right? I don't want any anger or disputing. We should be way against anger or disputing and just have our hands raised all the time. Now, what I'm saying is not... Oh, don't pay attention to these scriptures. What I'm saying is it's important to know what scripture is saying. A literal application is tricky at times, a lot of times when reading the scripture. And second thing, again, I want to point out that this was a result of the fall, as a result of sin. And we know that the work of Jesus Christ is to reverse all the effects of sin and the fall. So what is the context then? If we're going to try to look at the context of these verses, what is Paul talking about? Why is he saying these things? 
Well, the context back then, and now I'm not an expert. I've been reading up and studying a bit, and you might disagree with my application of this, and that's totally fine. But Jewish synagogues back then were segregated. The men would go to the synagogue and worship and learn, and they would go and they would hear someone read from this, a scribe read from the scrolls of Scripture. Nobody had a Bible, so you would go, the men would go, hear someone read from the scripture, and then they would go home and explain it to their wife. It's where mansplaining got its beginnings, right? It's scriptural. The men would go and learn, and then they'd go home. But now, because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, the message of the New Testament is everyone is equal. We worship together. Any dividing walls have been torn down. So now for the first time, in a culture that was very much uh, about the mistreatment of women, now all of a sudden women were experiencing freedom, and they were allowed to go and worship. So some scholars believe that what was happening in church is there was too much explaining going on. There was too much, what does that mean? What does that mean? And it was just becoming a distraction. Like going to a movie with a friend who's not paying attention to the movie but keeps asking questions. Who's that guy? What'd that guy say when I said, who's that guy? The, you ever been to a movie with that? And you're just like, I just want to watch the movie, right? Some scholars believe that that's what was happening, that there was just too much of a distraction. Some scholars believe that because the culture had mistreated women so badly, now that the women were experiencing this freedom, they were swinging way far the other way as a reason, like, I'm going to get payback, right? I'm going to bring up all sorts of stuff about my husband in this. And it was like almost like a way to pay their husbands back for all the ways that they've been mistreated. And Paul is reminding them, no, it's about submitting to one another. Some scholars believe that. Other scholars believe that it's a clear indication that women are not allowed to have these roles in the church. And that's why these church traditions have lent themselves that way. Again, a lot of disagreement about this. A lot of disagreement about this. And the main point, if you, if you disagree with what I'm saying, if you have that view about women in the church, the main point is, well, it says so in Scripture, and if you go to a church where there's a woman teacher or pastor, that means they're ignoring Scripture, and are you happy going to a church where they ignore Scripture? So I want to encourage anyone listening today, we believe in the authority of Scripture in our life. We just also believe it's important to know what it's saying to know what the context is, to know what the author was really saying. Because we look at that, and it's tricky. Because, now I know we can add context to any verse, and there's a lot of people that do a good job at kind of saying, well, what, the, what Jesus really meant was this, and to make the Bible say whatever they want. But the context here makes it so tricky. and Because we would say, this seems to go against all sorts of other scriptures in the New Testament, doesn't it? This seems to go against this. Um, but, and I want to caution us, and I... I don't know how to do this without you taking it the wrong way. I, I want you to know that I value Scripture, but a literal application of Scripture doesn't always work. For example, much of the Bible is prophecy. Much of the Bible is an allegory or poetry. There's entire books of the Bible that are poetry, and were never meant to be taken as literal to-dos on the to-do list, right? Jesus taught often in parables to make a point, but not to be literally interpreted. This is a lot of scripture, which is why it's so important to know what you're reading. A couple examples. In Matthew 18, Jesus says to the men who are listening, If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter a life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. What he's teaching the men is if your eye, if you look at a woman with lust in your thoughts and in your heart, it's better to pluck your eyes out. Now, we don't take that literally because every guy in here has both eyes still attached. So we know that that has not been taken literally. 
John 6, verse 56, Jesus is saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. We don't take that literally. That's a metaphor for receiving the, the broken body and the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's not like the only way to be a Christian is to find Jesus and start chewing on his arm, right? That's not a, li- we can't take that as a literal application, right? So we have no problem in those verses saying Jesus was being metaphorical or hyperbolical or something to make a point. You see that throughout the scriptures. So to take those other verses about women in the church without factoring in context and audience is, in my opinion, an error. We miss the point. And these verses go against other parts of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, the whole chapter is about how the work of Christ has broken down any barriers that society has set up, that there is nobody less gifted, less called, uh, less important in our culture. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is n- uh, nor is there male and female. For all of you, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Just keep that up there for a minute. Look at the different conflicts that the work of Christ has united. I mean, the male and female, we think that's a big deal. But Jew and Gentile, that was, like, that was society changing. There's no longer religious insiders. This is everybody. That would have been shocking. Slave and free, worker and master, to be united in Christ, shocking. And now men and women, male and female, all the things that society would say there's a reason for division, the work of Christ is to tear that down, to make everybody heirs in Christ. An heir means you have full rights, full authority. You are accepted part of the family. No second class in Christianity. This is the work of Jesus Christ. There is no one who is a second class. Finally, Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's all people. Your sons and daughters, and I don't believe that daughters is thrown in there by mistake. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Both men and women, all people, sons and daughters, will prophesy because of the Holy Spirit. What's prophecy? It's when you hear from the Lord and you teach others about it. You proclaim something. You are leading people. This is what the Holy Spirit will do for all people. So a lot of people would disagree with my interpretation of this. Our Assemblies of God denomination and Homestead Church is of the belief that God calls all people, that all people are the same and equal in the work of Christ Jesus. We have phenomenal female leaders in this church. Our church is better off when Christy Kerr comes and preaches and leads the way. Brooke Maxwell, another young, great communicator, and I know God has great uh, speaking opportunities for her to lead and to share her heart with other people. We are better off as a church when all people are operating in the gifts that God has called them to. Not everyone's going to be called to speak and to teach and to lead. However, We do not believe that male and female is a distinguishing factor of who can be called to speak and to teach and to lead. Um, There's people who disagree with that. This is where we are as our church and our denomination. And 
what I go back to is I look at the whole of Scripture. I watch Jesus. I look at Jesus. I read what he did. Did he, did he treat women as second class? No, he elevated them. Were there women leaders in the early church? Yes, there was. In Philippians, you'll read about a couple of them, Yodia and Syntyche, um, leaders in the early church. Romans 16 lists the name of women who were leaders and teachers in the early church, some that Paul even refers to as fellow apostles. Um, and here's really going back to the beginning of this ser- sermon. Any, anything that is a result of the fall, any hierarchy of importance amongst people is a result of sin, and the work of Jesus Christ is to redeem that and restore that. Now, we're, ne- we're not going to get that perfect on this earth. There's always going to be effects of sin on this earth, but I want to be a part of the work of making it right. I want to be always looking at this is where we're headed. This is what God's design is. I want to be about the work of, of bringing back the way that Jesus and bringing back the way that God originally designed it. We are equal in Christ. If you are a woman here and you have been told that your opportunities in the church are limited just because you were born a woman, I want to apologize. And I just want to say we want you to grow into everything that God has for you. Young ladies here, I want you to know that God has things in store for you, and I want you to be free to receive every calling and and gifting that God has put in your heart that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do. So this is what we get to be a part of. I've talked too long. We're running late. Um, But here's in marriage, in this church, I just want us to lead the way in modeling a Christ-like love, of elevating others, of allowing people to flourish, whether it's in your home, in your marriage, in this church, with other people, with your kids. Prefer the others. Lay down your life to elevate and cause other people to flourish. This is what will be the key to your marriage. This is what is the key to your family. And this is the way that we get to model the love that Jesus had for us so that other people will look at our marriages and in our relationships and say, oh, that is what the love of God looks like. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this day. I pray that you would seal this word in our heart. I'm praying for marriages that have been listening today that you would allow a new kind of reset of humility and acceptance and understanding and restoration for those marriages that are struggling right now. I pray for young women who are here feeling the call into ministry that you would embolden that in them and that you would raise them up as great leaders and teachers and pastors. And I pray that we would all have the mind of Christ in every relationship to lay down our lives to prefer one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.